MSW Media. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk Podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers. Leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. To be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, Allison Gill, and this is episode four on the book Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss. This week, we'll cover part four, The Power Delusion, and part five, Petty Tyrants and Psychopaths. And these chapters look at what kind of people seek and hold power, but more importantly, how and why we choose to allow corruptibles to control us. So we open on page 61 in the hardback edition with part four, The Power Delusion, and the section called White Guy in a Tie. Kloss opens with a story about a Chinese factory that hired a bunch of white guys in suits to act like American investors and tour a Chinese factory to kind of trick people into thinking the company was awesome. Of course, it was a ruse, and the reason they did it was because white guys in ties give the appearance of importance and prestige. But they were just actors, illustrating that what people look like is often the most important factor. Again, this reminds me of, and I know I've brought this up before, a bit by Eddie Izzard in her Dress to Kill special. Here's a clip. But you do sing the national anthem. I've seen you singing the national anthem, and I've worked out how to do it. If, you look, if you're lost in the middle of it and you're singing the words, you know, because it, the tannoy systems at big stadiums, you know, it doesn't matter. Wherever you're singing it, all that people care about is, is the look, because there's figures on this. 70% of what people react to is the look. You know, it's how you look. And there's about 20% is how you sound, and only 10% is what you say. So if you look good and sound good, just up there going, big mouth, the eyes, use that, and keep confirming and denying things. 
Now keep that in mind as we go through this chapter. The first bit is about the look and how it seems bizarre, but it's a real reflection of a fundamental truth about human society. Quote, we're often more obsessed with how something or someone appears than with who they are or what they can do. And that's as evidenced by the white actors in the factory in China. Then we get to some familiar statistics. In the United States, 468 of the Fortune 500 companies are run by men. 461 are run by a white person. And while white men make up only 30% of our population, they run 86% of Fortune 500 companies. Additionally, that leads to fewer women and people of color to work for those companies because they don't see a path to the top or leadership. A former British politician who has worked extensively on power imbalances calls it the snowy peaks and vanilla boys problem. <laughs> when minorities and women look to the top of a company and see snowy peaks and vanilla boys, some will seek jobs at smaller, more diverse companies, compounding the problem. And it's not just businesses, Klaus continues. As of 2020, just 16 of the 193 UN countries are led by women. The US, of course, is on the wrong side of that split. Further, the world leader in women's representation is the tiny country of Rwanda, 61% of women in parliament there, but that's because the male dictator and despot has packed it with women who rubber stamp his agenda so he can elicit more Western foreign aid because of how many women he has in parliament. We also tend to end up with horrible people in positions of authority, which is weird because you can't be a leader without followers. So why do we let awful, incompetent, and even murderous people control us and why are so many white guys in ties? Now, per usage, part of it has to do with our primitive brains, which means we have to look to signaling and status symbols. In nature, there are honest signals and dishonest signals. Kloss gives an example of each. First, there's the springbok, which, when in danger, like a cheetah is nearby, will jump up super high over the grass and draw attention to itself. It does this stotting or pronking, it's called to signal to predators that it's fast and agile and would just be too much of a pain in the ass to bother to chase. That's honest signaling. Then there's the fiddler crab, who has one giant-ass weird claw that's mostly useless but exists in hopes that rival males will see it and go, oh, never mind. And that's a dishonest signal. Now, signaling theory has another dimension to it, too, which is whether the signal has a cost. Like peacocks, for example, the massive beautiful plumage, attracts mates, but it also slows the birds down and makes them more susceptible to predators. On the other hand, some signals cost nothing, like the poisonous tree frog with the bright red stripe. Those dimensions, signaling, and the cost associated with it, can tell us a lot about human behavior, too, and it raises the question, are powerful people just better at appearing powerful? There was a theory by a psychologist and professor Dana Carney, and I'm sure you've heard this, it's called the impact of the power pose. Adopt a posture that takes up space, and you'll feel more powerful. In fact, the TED Talk is the second most downloaded TED Talk ever. It's just one problem. When researchers tried to replicate this, they couldn't. And Carney responded honestly, distancing herself from the research and saying she doesn't believe the effects of the power pose are actually real. Though, while it might not change how we feel, it certainly changes how others perceive us. Now, humans can signal status with, like, big houses, Rolex watches, and designer clothes to show excess wealth, for example. And there's a difference between what we think of as old money and new money. Quote, you're far more likely to see a 25-year-old startup billionaire in a yellow diamond-encrusted Ferrari as compared with, say, the Kennedys or the Queen of England. 
Now, another example is philanthropists that are seen as leaders by donating large amounts of money, which brings us to another experiment. Men were asked to donate to charity, and how much they agreed to donate varied based on factors that make sense, like wealth. Uh, But then researchers added a twist, the presence of an attractive woman. When that happened, men gave more. They believed that by flashing their cash around, they could signal status in front of an attractive woman. Women, by the way, did not change their donating patterns when an attractive male was in the picture. Now, as in the animal kingdom, humans use dishonest signaling too, hence the sidewalk stands that sell Rolex knockoffs to channel your inner fiddler crab, Klaas says. (laughs) And status symbols can invert themselves too. It used to be that tan people were seen as having a lower status because that was a signal that they worked outdoors or in the fields. But by the 1930s, that signal flipped, and tan meant you were wealthy because you could afford trips to the Bahamas and whatnot. But with the advent of tanning beds, the odds were even, and the signal meant nothing. And we all know this, so why do we consistently make bad choices about people we choose as leaders? Once again, we have to look back to the Stone Age. Apparently, we advanced too quickly. It's why we fail at diets, for example. Our ancestors' fruit wasn't as sweet as it is today, and the fat was scarce, so we're supercharged with way more fat and sugar than we previously had access to. Our fears followed the same evolutionary path. We remain terrified of snakes and spiders, even though they're really not that much of a threat. Anymore. So back then, following our cravings for sugar and fat and avoiding spiders and snakes helped us survive, but those same ideas are now probably harmful to us, so it seems logical we may have a corresponding mismatch when we choose our leaders. It's pretty clear we use physical appearance as a shortcut to choose leaders. We prioritize men over women, the physically large and tall over the less so, but it is possible to override those impulses, quote, but we can't fix that broken Stone Age way of thinking until we acknowledge that it exists within many of us. There have been roughly 8,000 generations of people in the last 200,000 years, and for about 7,980 of them, Size and strength were essential to survival. That's 99.8% of our history as a species. And, and Klaas says it's time to unlearn those outdated instincts. Now, next on page 74, Klaas covers gender and height. There was a study a decade ago that gave resumes or CVs to prestigious university scientists to rate. The only thing different about the resumes were the names on them. Everything else being equal, the scientists, both men and women, rated the male applicants higher. But is that biased learn, or is misogyny rooted in our prehistoric past? Let me read here from the bottom of page 74. As long as we've been recording history, women have been written out of it. Professor Mary Beard of the University of Cambridge, in her book Women and Power, showcases countless examples of sexism from antiquity to modernity. It, it wasn't just that women didn't get power in the ancient world, but rather the very idea of granting power to women was often viewed as absurd. As Beard explains, in the 4th century BC, Aristophanes devoted a whole comedy to the hilarious fantasy that women might take over running the state. Part of the joke was that women couldn't speak properly in public. As Beard highlights, when women were elevated to positions of power, one of three things tended to happen to them. First, they would be described as manly, suggesting that only women that mimicked men as much as possible could aspire to power. Second, they were depicted as animals barking or yapping when they spoke, physically incapable of the manly gift of human speech. And third, they were depicted as conniving and manipulative usurpers who abused power when they managed to somehow 
wriggle into it. So the bottom line, Klaus says, is that there's no male gender advantage in actually wielding power, but society acts as though one exists. And he then mentions Putin and how he, like clockwork, releases shirtless photos of himself on horseback or fighting a bear or doing judo or some other show of strength, and that appeals to the Stone Age brain. And then there's the height factor. In 1675, the Prussian army created the Potsdam Giants Regiment. You could only be part of it if you were six foot two, which was huge in those days. And the king, Wilhelm I, would make tall soldiers march in front of him wherever he went. And his obsession with tall soldiers got so bad, he resorted to kidnapping tall people, paying for them, and then even trying to breed tall people. Oddly, it was all pointless when the range weapons came into play. Once you could have a gun, you didn't need to be tall. And Wilhelm was ultimately and ironically defeated by Napoleon Bonaparte. American presidents are consistently taller than the population, too. Uh, so, quote, we give power to men more than women and taller men more than shorter men. So what about race? And that brings us to page 79, baby faces and bigotry. So back in the Stone Age days, we rarely ran into folks of different races. And our hunter-gatherer minds categorized others as in-group or out-group, friends, enemies, or strangers. And to be safe, strangers should be perceived as enemies, too. But since we rarely ran into people of other races at that time, racism couldn't have been reinforced by a psychological evolution the same way biases for height and gender are. So is racism culturally learned? But as previously mentioned, the in-group and out-group concept gives us a predisposition to fear, quote-unquote, others. And Klaus introduces an experiment here where Manchester United fans were asked to walk from one facility to another, and on the way, they'd encounter someone that was hurt. If that hurt person was wearing a Manchester United jersey, they would stop 92% of the time to help them. If they wore a rival jersey, the number dropped to 30%. So even when it's irrational and potentially damaging to our best interests, we tend to trust those whom we identify with. So that brings up the whole concept of baby faces. All human faces can be scored on how baby-faced they are, and the technical term is actually baby-faceness. There are countless studies on this phenomenon, all showing that people with baby faces are seen as less of a threat, that there's a disheartening twist. Studies show that in white-dominated societies, baby-faced black people are more able to attain power, as white people view black people with more adult faces as a threat. However, white CEOs with baby faces are often seen as weak. Quote, in a white-dominated society, it seems that having a baby face helps you if you're black and hurts you if you're white. It's horrifyingly bonkers, he says. So what can be done? First, any group that has a hierarchy should be producing data about demographics of its leadership, because to fix a problem, we have to see that it exists. Second, blind recruitment should be used wherever possible. And that's, you know, where you don't put names at the top of resumes or CVs, or you interview over the phone. Third, recruitment panels should be diverse. And fourth, uh, anonymization should be introduced as early in life as possible, like anonymous school assignments. So grades are based on the work and not who handed it in. For example, Kloss says, as a professor, all the essays he grades are anonymized. It won't destroy systemic inequalities, he says, but it can make a meaningful dent. And that brings us to another question to tackle. Why are corrupt people so effective at manipulating their way into power? Quote, to put it bluntly, why do so many of society's leaders seem to be narcissistic psychopaths? And we'll dig into that after this quick break. Stay with us. 
I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. All right, everybody, welcome back. Let's head to part five on page 85 in the hardback. Petty tyrants and psychopaths uh, with the story of the maintenance man of Schenectady. And I'm going to summarize this story for you, but seriously, read it word for word. Floss is an incredible writer, and it'll blow your mind. And I know you'll be reminded of someone as you read it, just as I was. A maintenance man named Steve Rouchy, who made about $42,000 a year, craved power, and set his sights on becoming the district's energy-saving czar. So Steve hatched a scheme, because no one was just going to give him this power. He had to go and take it. Part one of the plot was to sabotage the current energy-saving czar, Lou Semien. And uh, to help save money on electricity, the district rolled out some new software to track energy use. It could pinpoint problem areas and give the operator centralized control to turn things on and off. And the software seemed daunting for Semien, so Steve volunteered to manage it. And then when he did, he would leave stadium lights on over holiday weekends and, you know, so basically things like that. So the energy costs skyrocketed and eventually Semyon got fired and Steve convinced the bosses to let him try the job. And in the spirit of many conniving power seekers, getting the job wasn't enough. Steve had to humiliate his predecessor. And during their last encounter, he said to Lou, I want to tell you we were fucking with you. And once it was his turn to manage the software, he became the Scrooge of electricity. And I'm going to read here um, from page 87. But unlike Scrooge, Steve had no moral awakening. Instead, his behavior got progressively worse. He sexually harassed subordinates. Anyone who challenged him faced threats. When his secretary casually remarked during a water cooler banter that Steve wasn't her type, he transferred her to a worse office. Then, in his annual Christmas speech at an event that normally would involve a toast from the boss and good tidings to all employees, Steve warned that nobody should cross him. Uh, lest he have to eliminate them. Quote, only I will be the fixer, he hissed. If there had been a modern-day Tiny Tim, Rouchy would probably have snipped the cord on Tiny Tim's electric wheelchair while it was charging. Now, eventually, like most power-hungry assholes, the the czar job wasn't enough for Steve, and he set his sights on the union. But someone blew the whistle on him. And he went ballistic, and he targeted the whistleblowers, and even spray-painted rat on their house in red spray paint, then bust other union members out to the house to praise the work of the vandal, whoever it was. A district employee complained about Steve to the superintendent, and his tires were slashed. Ron Chris tried to speak out, and his truck was vandalized, and Steve would brag about it. And if he sounds like a mafia boss, it's of note that he actually had a photo of Don Corleone hung up in his office. Then... Steve tried to build an empire of allies to protect him. He would give people loans, bribe school board members, and the like. But eventually he fucked up. When trying to intimidate a rival by using explosives, he left behind his DNA on a cigarette butt. That tied him to the one crime, but not others, 
So the police had one of Steve's friends wear a wire, and the recordings were bonkers. On one tape, you could hear him saying, when I'm dead, they'll always be talking about what Steve did. And he would float in and out of referring to himself in the third person, by the way. Quote, I'm everybody's hero. Everybody's lucky because they get a Steve. I wish my mom had twins so I could have a Steve to go to. Wow. Another recording caught him showing off an explosive device in his office, which happened to be in a middle school. So with the kids in danger, the cops moved in quickly, put Steve in cuffs, and in 2010, he was sentenced to 23 years to life in prison. So while this is an extreme example, Steve exhibited signs of something called the dark triad, which is Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. Now, measuring the dark triad is somewhat subjective, but it can be done with a 12-question questionnaire known as the Dirty Dozen, though not everyone's going to cop to their shitty traits in a questionnaire. So to find the fakers, more robust studies are needed. So how do we spot the Steves among us? That brings us to ants, spiders, and snakes in suits on page 91. The ants and spiders is a reference to the dark-footed ant spider who makes itself look like an ant by walking on six of its legs and using the two front legs to simulate antenna like an ant. It does this so it can walk among the ants but eat spider eggs. And as Ed Young of National Geographic put it, quote, It is, essentially, a spider that looks like an ant to avoid being eaten by spiders so that it itself can eat spiders. Psychopaths, similarly, try to mimic people with normal brains. And once in disguise, they prey on those people. Enter the study by Valeria Gazzola and Christian Kaisers who showed people images of, of other people being hurt and then scanned their brains. And psychopaths showed no brain activity where empaths would light up. But then they told the psychopaths to pretend like they cared. And sure enough, their brains could mimic those of empaths. So if psychopaths can be coached to mimic ordinary people, can the opposite be true? Sort of like when a nice person has to fire someone. We down-regulate empathy to get it done. Compartmentalize it. Same with surgeons or soldiers. But normal brains have empathy switched on by default, whereas psychopaths have it switched off by default. So psychopaths can blend in. Successful ones end up in boardrooms or Congress or managing hedge funds. Now, Kloss doesn't name names here, but I think we can all pick out obvious ones that come to mind. And then three leading researchers on psychopathy in the workplace, uh, Paul Bobiak, Craig Newman, and Robert Hare, wondered if the dark triad was more or less represented in top levels of company hierarchy. When psychopathy is sampled in the population as a whole, about 1 in 500 rate high on the scale for psychopathy. That number is 20 times higher in corporate leadership positions, 20 times higher. And further, dark triad traits may have a double effect. Not only do they make corruptibles crave power, but they can also make them more effective at getting it, possibly because of an ability to focus on ruthless self-interest and risk-taking. But there's a sorting effect, too. Dark triad people, for example, aren't drawn to charity work. The 10 professions with most psychopaths are CEOs, lawyers, TV and radio personalities, salespeople, surgeons, journalists, police officers, priests, chefs, and civil servants. And one study found Washington, D.C. has by far the most psychopaths per capita of, or per capita of any region in the United States. Quote, psychopaths are rare, but they are more drawn to power and better at getting it. Now, another, another professor, Leanne Ten Brink, conducted a study with elected officials. She found that those farther along the dark triad spectrum were better at getting reelected than their more normal-brained peers, but worse 
at passing legislation. Again, no one named here, as Kloss keeps it clean, but can you think of a psychopath that keeps getting reelected, that displays anger as his dominant emotion and has no empathy for, say, abused members of a wrestling team? So how can you tell whether a psychopath is functional? The good news is most bosses aren't off the charts with dark triad stuff. So what accounts for all the normal-brained petty tyrants? And why are we so often unlucky enough to have overconfident fools control us? And that brings us to the 20% is how you sound part of Eddie Izzard's National Anthem example, which is not mentioned in the book, by the way, Eddie Izzard. Uh, I was just personally reminded of it. And uh, that's explored in The Determined Meerkat on page 103. So when it's time for a group of meerkats to move, one of them will make a move call. Sometimes they're ignored, sometimes they're followed. And the thing that makes the difference isn't rank or social status. It's actually confidence. Social rank was irrelevant. It's about which one sounded the most certain. Now, humans are a mix of the two. Rank matters, but so does confidence. And we've learned that certain people, such as Steve or that homeowners association guy McFife or Emperor Bacasa, are drawn to power and good at manipulation and intimidation. But it's not just those corruptibles we need to worry about. Quote, we can't let the systems we operate within off the hook just yet. To answer those kinds of questions, we need to think a bit about rice, explore how the rise of bicycles facilitated some of the worst atrocities committed by our species, take a ski lesson with a man who inherited a dictatorship, and explore the structure of a beehive. And we will do all that next week, beginning on page 107 in the hardback edition. Uh, also out today is a new episode of Muller She Wrote. You can check out and you can join me tomorrow on The Daily Beans for a discussion with Laura Coates about her new book, Just Pursuit. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.